starting a new series this morning through the Gospel of John, which if you're new to Scripture is about 75 to 80% of the way through your Bibles. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 1. Starting this morning, we plan to cover every verse in the Gospel of John, which is a, a first-hand eyewitness account uh, from the first century of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. We will spend more than a year together exploring this book. But before we pick up in verse 1, I want to start by sharing a few thoughts about the book itself. The New Testament, if you're new to the scriptures, begins with four historical accounts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you are familiar with these accounts, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while or kind of grown up in a church environment, you may know that John, out of the four, is a little different. If you were to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that order, you would likely recognize the great similarities between all three of them. They have a similar look, a similar feel, a similar tone. They actually have similar timelines laying out uh, the ministry of Jesus, and they cover similar stories. In fact, the first three are so similar that together they are called the synoptics, meaning that they are similar to one another or they work together. Uh, and they are synonyms. Uh, in fact, they are so similar that 93% of all of the content of Mark can be found in Matthew and Luke. So, at the risk of confusing you, uh, if you were to read Matthew and Luke as a starting point and then get to Mark, by the time you got to Mark, there would only be about 7% of uh, sort of original material in there that you hadn't already read. But then you would come to the fourth gospel. Written most likely by John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus' disciples and part of his inner circle. It was penned years later after the others in the city of Ephesus, and John has had not months or years, but decades to reflect on his experience of Jesus before putting pen to paper. Out of his entire account, a mere 8% of it can be found in any of the other gospel accounts. So just to put that in perspective, over 90% of Mark is found in the other two synoptics, but over 90% of John is found nowhere else. John is different. The gospel that we are about to read uh, reads differently than the others. There is no virgin birth or any birth at all. There are no wise men, no shepherds, no Sermon on the Mount, no parables, no exorcisms, no transfiguration. Instead, we encounter something that looks and feels different. 
From its inception, the Gospel of John was hotly contested within the early church, and it's been met throughout history with a love-it-or-hate-it mentality. It is difficult to stay neutral in light of John's writing and the way that he's written. Uh, As a result, the Gospel of John, along with Revelation, which many people believe John also wrote, uh, has become one of the most controversial books in the entire New Testament. And yet, it has gripped human hearts and shaped the church like no other. In fact, even today, when uh, street evangelists are uh, trying to witness to people, they will often hand out the Gospel of John as sort of a standalone introduction to who Jesus is. Meaning, hey, I can tell you're curious about God or about Jesus. If you can only read one book in the Bible, why don't you start here with this book. And in fact, when the Bible is translated into a new language, there are still thousands of unreached people groups. The Bible still has yet to be translated into many of the languages it needs to be. But as that process is happening, the Bible translators will start with the book, with the gospel of John. Meaning the very first thing that becomes available uh, to any uh, culture, any language, is the Gospel of John. If you can only read one book in the Bible, it should be this book. And here's why. If the first three Gospel accounts exhibit Jesus' body, the fourth, it's been said, unveils his soul. It was coined by Lament of Alexandria as, quote, a spiritual gospel. And John has written in such a way that we don't just get historical facts. Jesus went to this place on this day and said such and such a thing. We actually get sort of a a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. We get to see uh, his heart, his soul, his way of thinking. Um, that the others don't provide. And that becomes apparent right from the the opening verses. If you have any uh, lingering doubts that John is going to look and feel different than the others, you need only to pick up where we are picking up this morning. In chapter 1, verse 1, John writes this. He says, In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Mark starts his account with a full-grown John the Baptist making an announcement about Jesus in the wilderness. Luke starts his account a little further back, actually with the conception of John the Baptist, and the immaculate conception of Jesus himself. Matthew 
goes even further back than that and starts with the genealogy of Jesus, tracing his human lineage all the way back to Abraham. But John does something else entirely. He doesn't start with Jesus' ministry or even Jesus' birth or his family line that led up to his birth. He starts, quote, in the beginning. Which, if you know your Bibles, is the very first line of Scripture. First words in the entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, Which, in Hebrew, essentially means, in the before time, God brought into being everything that exists today. From start to finish, from A to Z. And now John is going to take this concept of the creator God, this truth about who he is, and he's going to draw it out. If any of you are familiar with the concept of an amplified Bible, it's a Bible that uses more words to say the same thing. So they take something, a truth of God, but they use more words to explain it and sort of draw out uh, more of the, the significance of the text. And there's a sense in which that's what John is doing here. He's taking the original verse of Scripture, but he says there's actually uh, stuff loaded in there that can be exposed, unveiled, drawn out. There's a deeper meaning that isn't immediately evident in the original text. Remember that the New Testament writers are Old Testament people. They are steeped in the Old Testament. That is their Bible. It's what they've been raised on, what they've studied, enjoyed, memorized. They've lived and breathed it. And yet, the New Testament writers also understood themselves to be continuing the divine story, to be writing Scripture themselves as they put pen to paper, revealing and expounding upon Jesus as the climax of the story of Scripture that they had been raised on. So instead of, in the beginning, God, he draws it out. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see what he's done here? The original verse is still here. It's it's just uh, amplified, drawn out, unveiled before his audience. He hasn't taken anything away from the original meaning. He has not altered or distorted it. Rather, he's drawn something out that was hidden within it. He opens up the meaning. He uh, extends and deepens what was already there. When speaking of the New and Old Testaments, uh, Augustine said it this way. He said, the old is in the new revealed, the new is in the old concealed. In other words, John realized after encountering Jesus and reflecting on that experience, there's actually more hidden or concealed in those opening 
verses of Scripture. There's more to be said between the words beginning and the word God. There is this pre-existent word that is also a person that can somehow be God and yet also be with God. There's an element of distinction, but also a oneness with God. A divine, eternal, pre-existent person through whom God created the heavens and the earth. All things A to Z. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He says, this is what was happening back in Genesis. And it all happens through the word. Now, at this point, John still hasn't identified this word of God. And there's actually a lot of debate as to why John uses that phrasing. But it's worth noting that this word or logos in Greek actually had deep significance for both Jews and Greeks. Within uh, Greek thinking and philosophy, the logos referred to, quote, the divine rationale that ordered the universe, the principle of divine reason and creative order. So the Greeks, uh, they knew this concept, they, they loved this concept. And in Hebrew thought, uh, the word simply referred to God's revelation of himself uh, through the prophets throughout their history. And so by choosing this word, um, the word word, logos in the Greek, John is actually tapping into both of these streams of thought at the same time. He's speaking something that's going to resonate with his Greek audience, which is actually where the gospel is beginning to explode at this point in the story. And he's speaking into uh, those rooted in the uh, original story of Scripture. John is saying Jesus is both of these things. Uh, He is the divine rationale that orders the universe. He is the agent through whom uh, God created everything. Everything is made through him and for him, Paul says. Without him, nothing was made that has been made, John says. He, He is that, and he is God's divine revelation of himself to humanity. On the Gentile side, the Greek side, uh, Greeks were so excited about the idea of Jesus as the Logos that some wanted the opening verses of John hung in every church in the world, front and center, in the most visible place, in gold letters. That's how excited they were about this concept, about this idea. It was electric for them. But more importantly, John is tapping into a rich biblical history of God speaking and revealing himself. And if you step back and think about it, you can think, okay, God is is different than us. He's not 
like us, how can God reveal himself to us in a way that we can grasp? How does the God of Israel reveal himself throughout the story of Scripture? Well, the same way that you or I reveal ourselves to one another with words. If I do not use words, written or spoken, you cannot truly know me. My words are not me in the true sense of the word. They're they're distinct from me, but they arise from me, from some sort of deep personal place of heart and mind and will. From there, my words emerge, and my words allow you to know me And your words allow me to know you. They they allow us to uh, enter into one another's worlds. Uh, If we do not have words, uh, we we don't have that. We cannot know each other on the deepest level. My words embody and express who I am. And so in the very general sense, as humans, it doesn't matter if you're one of the humans who uses a little bit of words or one of the humans who uses a lot of words. There's a spectrum there. But as humans, in general, we are speaking, self-revealing people made in the image of the speaking, self-revealing God. And John is saying that from the beginning, God speaks. God reveals himself. He wants to explain himself. He wants to be known. It's in the very heart of God for him to reveal himself to his creation. And I know this might sound confusing, but before God spoke creating words in the opening chapters of Genesis... He had already in eternity past spoken and revealed himself in the word. This logos, this word of God that John speaks of is not spoken sounds that bring about a result. As in, uh, you know, let there be light. And, and those other phrases he's speaking in Genesis, those are Those are words, sounds that he's making that then bring about a result in the created world. This is different, what John is talking about here. He isn't speaking sounds. He's speaking himself. In the words of Ian Calloway, God speaks himself to reveal himself through himself. In his very nature, from all eternity, God is a being who makes himself known. And I know this all feels a bit heady, but as we close, I want to bring it back down to real life. Because humanity has got some serious issues when it comes to God. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but humanity doesn't naturally gravitate toward the Father, effortlessly accepting His love. 
somehow coming into the freely given love of God in Jesus is a massive struggle. It's a bloody battle. It is full of confusion and resistance and rebellion. It does not come naturally to us. And we've got confusion humanity-wide about uh, who Jesus is on the one hand. Oh, he's uh, just a good teacher. He was just a religious zealot. Or perhaps he was a bit confused. But in any case, he is fully human. It's humanity's assumption and sort of wrestling with, wait, who is Jesus? So we have those struggles on the one hand, and then on the other hand, we sort of compartmentalize these things, and then we ask this totally other set of questions about who is God? That's a struggle for us. Does God exist? And, and if he does, what is he like? And if he's there, uh, how could I possibly know him? Agnostics would say, I, I cannot know him. He's too great a mystery to be known, even if he is there. And for every human being, we can all in unity say, God is not like me. He's just not. God is not like you. How can I know an eternal being who stands outside of space and time and, and yet also within them? How can I know the Creator God who made the heavens and the earth? Incomprehensible in power, in knowledge, in wisdom? How can I know a holy God who exists in utter purity? How can I know what some traditions and spiritualities over the ages have simply called the great mystery? Like, how, how, how does that work? I mean, where, where, where do I start? How do I engage with that? Well, John's opening verses speak to both of those realities. Jesus is not merely human, nor is he human somehow become divine. Long before the first human took a breath or opened their eyes, he was there. In eternity past, with God, as God, as the Logos. And it's the Logos, John is saying, who is now coming into humanity who is uh, putting on flesh and blood. 
John has written in, a su- in such a way from the very opening verses to transcend one-dimensional understandings of, of who Jesus is. So he's, he's writing about this God who is three and one, who is this uh, dynamic, seemingly impossible unity And yet, in an equally profound way, in the same verses, he's talking about this this, uh, identity that transcends a one-dimensional human identity. That is this seemingly impossible union between the logos and, and flesh. The pre-existent Son of God... It becomes this sort of confronting picture of who Jesus is. He, he is this, this pre-existent, eternal Son of God who is now stepping into humanity. Who is now going to become visible to us. The same one who was the agent through whom God created the universe is now coming to us in a tangible way. He is not merely human, In fact, the real mystery in light of John's opening verses is how the Logos could enter humanity at all. Like, How how does that work? How can he do that? How can he come to us in person? From the opening verses, we are ushered into a stunning and eternal picture of who Jesus is. And finally, God speaks to our ability to know God and, for, and God's ability to make himself known. Because the Logos is God's word to us. The scriptures say long ago and in various times and places, God spoke by the prophets. The original, quote, word of God, lowercase. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. His Son is the Word. His Son is the message. How can we be certain as humanity that we can know God? How does that work for me in my finite, confused little life to know this transcendent, eternal reality? How do we know that that's possible? Well, it's possible because in His very nature, God wants to be known. He wants to disclose himself. He wants people to be in relationship with him. There's only one time in the entire Gospel of John that God speaks out loud. And all he says is, he's speaking to Jesus, he says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's it. Those are the only audible words that God speaks in the entire Gospel of John. But what the Gospel of John does, arguably more than any other single book in the entire Bible, is to stunningly reveal who God is through the Logos of God. Everything that God is, 
His nature, his essence, his love, his character is expressed in the life, works, deeds, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Taken all together, everything that Jesus is, everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus says, all of it comprehensively is God's word to us. No one has ever seen God, John says a few verses later. But the one and only Son, who is himself in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. You and I can know God. Our friends, our neighbors, our family members, our enemies, people that we think are a million miles away can know God. Why? Because God wants to be known and He's really good at making Himself known. In eternity past, he was revealing himself in and through the Word, the Logos. And that Logos, the the divine rationale that ordered the universe, the very essence and beating heart of God, has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus. The Gospel of John is not so much John telling the story of who Jesus is. It is Jesus telling the story of who God is. This is the divine revelation, the radical act of self-disclosure that we are going to study and enjoy together in the weeks and months ahead. Let's pray. As we pray this morning, I actually invite you to just do a little visualizing with me. I want you to just take some deep breaths and close your eyes and just picture in your mind's eye time running backward, your life running in reverse, Um, going further and further back in time and then right past your birth, before you were born into past generations, see humanity running in reverse. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents shrinking back across the earth from where humanity started and spread out. If you could picture in your mind's eye the, the centuries, the millennia ticking backwards and there's less people and less people and less people and all of a sudden there's no one in North America or South America 
and the people who are in Asia and Europe start shrinking backward over time toward that center point. Then I want you to continue to picture that clock running backwards and humanity disappearing. Back to the moment when there was no humanity, when no one had taken a breath or, or thought a thought. And I want you to continue to just see everything running in reverse. Back through the history of the earth to the time when there are no animals, no more living organisms, no more plants. There was a time when the earth was bare, formless and void, dark, chaotic, lifeless. That was a reality. But now I want you to continue to see that clock run in reverse. Before the earth was even created to be formless and void, there was a time when the earth did not exist. There was, there was nothing. There was no planet earth. as you continue to roll that clock back in your minds in the same way that humanity shrinks back to a common point, the entire universe, as you go back in time, begins shrinking back to its center. Shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until it disappears into a tiny pinpoint and ceases to exist. If you can imagine it in your mind's eye, imagine that there is no universe, there is no physical atom or molecule, there's nothing to see or taste or smell. The universe does not exist before time as we know it began. There, in eternity past, was God. Can you see him there? Can you imagine him there? And there was the Logos, the Word eternally with God, eternally as God. He was there in the beginning, before anything existed, before any of us had even been a thought in his mind. He was there. And when all of this fades away, He will be there as He always has been, as He always will be.
going to turn our thoughts, hearts, our minds toward the eternal logos. Come to us in Jesus. Toward the Father who's always loved the Son. Toward the, the Spirit of God that was there with them in eternity past. They're the ones we're going to worship. For some of us, that's going to be singing out loud. For some of us, that's just going to be sitting in wonder and in awe. Because that wonder, that is worship. we can, let's try and hold in our minds the one whom we are worshiping, who has no beginning, who has no end, through whom and for whom everything was made. There's nothing we can study or observe or love or hate or enjoy or disdain that has not been born out of that creative power including ourselves, including the other people around you in this room and our neighbors and our enemies. Jesus, we cannot fully comprehend you. And I'm not even sure that in our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth that we will ever, for all eternity, as we explore you and enjoy you and become more like you, I don't know that we will ever fully understand an infinite God. But it's our joy, Lord, and our calling to grow in our knowledge of who you are, to grow in our experience of you, to follow after you, and in doing so, be shaped more and more into the image bearers that you made us to be. We come to you now with a sense of wonder, with a sense of awe, with a sense of worship, with some of us, maybe even a sense of frustration. This is all so beyond us. And yet, Jesus, you come to us through the fog of our own speculation and our own confusion, and, and you come to meet with us. Would you meet with us now as we worship you, contemplate you, behold you, seek you? In Jesus' name.